some are scared of spiders. Uh, some in this congregation are actually, you might say, deathly scared of them. Some are scared of flying on airplanes, even, even on our elder board. I won't call them out, but you should ask all the elders. <laughs> Many fear heights. Uh, I don't know about you. I don't really fear heights as much as I fear falling and hitting the ground. So I think that's a little different. But, of course, they have names for all of these things, these phobias. You have arachnophobia, of course, fear of spiders, aerophobia, the fear of planes, claustrophobia, the fear of being in tight spaces, or even what some claim to suffer from glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. No comment there. But I suppose by giving a name to it, a label to it, it helps a couple ways. One, you realize you're not the only one with this fear, and that's somewhat reassuring. Uh, but two, it also tells you, as it's given the name phobia, that this is something, whatever you fear, it's your fear of it's irrational. <laughs> you fear it far too much, far beyond whatever the danger warrants. So, for example, if you have a fear of flying, I mean, yes, we can all be honest, a plane crash would be perilous. However, plane crashes, thankfully, don't happen too often. Actually, with all of the flights, regulations, and technology, and so forth, by comparison, flying is probably the safest way to travel across this planet. So those are the things we have phobias and fears about, and yet I guarantee you, even if you don't suffer from those kind of phobias, you might indeed, I trust, you do have some kind of fear. There is some trepidation in your heart that you brought in on your heart as you came into worship this morning that there is some phobia, so to speak, that's troubling you and your faith. And in case you're having trouble identifying what yours might be, let me pose this question, because it'll identify it. What is something that you just become easily anxious about? What is that thing that you run through the what-ifs, and you think, if this happens, then fret just is going to take over my life? This is the kind of thing that wakes you up at night. It troubles your heart. Is it money? You're looking at the economy, you know, it's like slide over on my phone, and I see what stocks are doing, and you're going, <laughs> it's not good. But it's one thing to say, oh, that's not good, and I have concern about that. And there's another thing to be terrified of it, to be despairing in it, to be captured by fear. Or maybe it's your job. Maybe you don't know what, what tomorrow holds for your job. You don't know how you can go back to face your boss. You don't know how you can deal with those that you're supposed to manage. So it terrifies you, wakes you up at night. Or maybe it's your kids. They're making choices that you think are not so good, and, and, you, and you run through the what if. Well, if, they, if they're like this now, what are they going to be like in 10 years? And these kind of things wake you up at night. What is such a fret in your heart that as you think about it, you just, you're scared? We all have these things. What are we supposed to do about them? Well, Exodus provides some help this morning. And curiously, it does so in a way that it maybe is not so intuitive, but it's this. The book of Exodus, the Scriptures here, they're showing you whatever you fear, there's something else you should fear far, far more, or really someone else. 
And the curious thing is, while he is the one you must fear, he is then too the actual answer to all the fears and dangers that you are scared of. Fear God more so you can then trust him. That's the word from Exodus that comes out of this great view of redemption. What we see in the Exodus as he parts the sea and delivers his people, the power of God is on display. It's on display really in like no other way in salvation save one place at the cross of Christ. This is it. This is the high point of God's intervening in history to work heaven and earth to work redemption. And it shows us great power. But here's the astonishing thing. Before his power, Israel, we should be on our faces. But it's a power he uses to help helpless sinners. That's the incredible thing. There's a mercy mingled with this might. So, whatever fears you're bringing before the Lord, whatever your doubts are, whatever you're troubled by, we see Israel, they're quite troubled in this text. And how does it get answered? Well, answer your fears with a view of God's mighty power to save helpless sinners, desperate sinners, sinners that have no other rescue. So you would trust Him and fear Him all the more. And we'll see that in these really five displays of His power. And the first is this, He alone has the power to save His people, verses 15 to 18. So as we turn to this text in the Exodus, we, hear, we see now like, this view of God's great power. And what maybe surprises us is, if you remember from last week, God's setting all of this up. This wasn't like, oh, things didn't go so well, so God came up with some other plan. No, He set this up to happen just this very way. Because if you remember from where we were, where last time, Israel, yes, had gone out of Egypt, but now they're stuck. God even was leading them out of Egypt, and yet He's led them into a dead end. He's led them into a cul-de-sac. They are between the mountains, and they're between the sea and a desert, and there's one way in and one way out, and now Egypt is chasing after them. And at its view, they are terrified. When God's people look up, they see Pharaoh coming out to get them. They see there's nowhere to run. And so their great faith, as they triumphantly triumphantly went out of Egypt, turns to fear. So look back. Look to verse 10 of Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And remember, we saw last time, these kind of cries out to the Lord, these were not cries of, you know, oh Lord, help us. These were not cries of, oh Lord, you need to save us. These were cries of complaining. These were cries of doubting. These were cries of despair. These were accusatory assaults on God's character. God, what, you mean to kill us in the wilderness? Was there not enough graves in Egypt? That's why you brought us out here? That's their fear talking. That's their doubt talking. They're helpless. They're scared. And Moses' first word to them is, stop fearing. You have no reason to be afraid. 
Why? Because of these words. Because the Lord will powerfully deliver. Remember in the text we saw this. Stand firm, Moses tells them, and see, watch, the salvation of the Lord our God. He will fight for you. You have only to be silent. That's beautiful. But how's he going to do it? That's the crazy thing. How is he going to do it? Well, he set this up to do it in such a way that no one else can do it. He sets this up to do it in such a way that only the God who created all things can save. That's why he put Israel right in the spot where he placed them. He's put them in a situation, and he told them ahead of time. Admittedly, it's a very fearful one, but there's no hope that they can have in themselves, right? They're stuck. There's no rescue for them in and what they can do. And actually, I think as Moses starts, I don't even think Moses has an idea of what God's going to do. Which I think the Lord's first words to Moses in this situation would be just a shock. Look at verse 15 now, looking properly at our text. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Again, Moses being really the representative of the people before God. And of course, the people are crying out to the Lord again in accusation. And the Lord responds, why do you cry out to me, Moses? You go tell the people of Israel to go forward. March. March where? Where are they facing? They're facing the ocean. They're facing the sea. It's like God just told them, Moses, go lead them off the plank. Where are they going to go? Go forward where, God? Well, then God tells Moses what he's going to do, how this is supposed to work. Go forward, march right into the sea. Why? Because God is going to do something that only the creator God can do. Look at verse 16. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, Moses, and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea, but on dry ground. I mean, what a paradox. March forward, Israel, because you're actually going to march through the sea, but on dry ground. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen save a miracle. The intervention of the Creator God. And even hints of creation are here with that last word from verse 16, dry ground. The first time we hear that word is actually in Genesis chapter 1, when God made the dry ground. He splits the seas and brings the dry ground up. That same Creator God now leverages, flexes His Creator muscles to, see, to save, redeem, and rescue His people. To create a way when there was no way before. Moses, raise your staff. The ocean's going to split, and we are all going to go into it walking on dry ground like walking on concrete. This is not wet sand. This is not mud. This is sure-footed, solid ground. Who can do that? Who can make this kind of thing happen? There is one who can do this, and his name is Yahweh, the Lord God. We'll see in the next chapter, Lord willing, next week, Israel, in response to this, they're going to lift up their voices and sing, and what are they going to say? Who is like you, O Lord? 
and they don't ask it as an honest question. We all know the answer. Who is like Him? There is none like Him. He alone is God. He alone can save. And here's the thing. When He then alone steps in to save, no one can get in His way. Because that's what Egypt thought, right? That's where we began. That's what Pharaoh thought. He said, who's the Lord that I should listen to Him? But he couldn't stop the Lord. He couldn't stop Yahweh. And furthermore, the Lord's actually going through all of this. Remember, He sets Israel up like bait in this vulnerable position to draw Egypt out, and then He's going to take them both into the sea to then eliminate, or as He puts it in verses 16 and 17, to get glory over Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the earth, to get glory over his army, to get glory over his gods, to get glory over all that Pharaoh trusted in. The Lord alone can do it. He is strong to save. No one else can. So, friends, I trust you see that this is the message that the gospel preaches. That's why God did it just like this with Israel. He could have done it many other ways, right, if His goal was just to eliminate the Egyptians. Remember, when He's killing all the firstborns, why didn't He just kill all the Egyptians? Why does he do it just like this? So his people would be in the most vulnerable position to see that they have no hope in and of themselves, to see that they have no place or no way to get out. Why? Because he's saying, that's the gospel. That's how I redeem. I redeem only once you realize there's nothing you can offer and do to make this any better. Because what happened? Christ came down from heaven, didn't he? And what did he do? He lived a life on earth that you couldn't live because it was sinless. And then what did he do? He took hell on the cross for your sins, a price that you could never pay. And then what did he do? He rose from the dead to give the power of life to all in trust in him, something you could never have of your own. And then he gives you life, mercy, forgiveness, eternal life, and by faith. No work of yours, but as a gift. No credit of yours, but all to Him. Why does He do it like that? Well, it's like what He does it like here. He says to get glory, to get the praise, to get all the credit. Such that Paul can say, as he meditates on the gospel in Romans chapter 3, what does he say? Where then is their boasting? It is excluded. It is shut out unless you're going to boast in one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, put away your strivings. Put away your self-righteousness. Put away your good deeds, your merits. And put away all of your fears and your sins. And boast only in the power of God seen at the cross. Because that's the way and the only way one can be saved. We also see this. The Lord alone has the power to keep His people. He saves them, but not only does He initially rescue them, but He keeps them all the way. We see that pictured here in verses 19 and 20. We see this as the Lord creates this buffer or barrier to keep the Egyptian pursuers at bay all night long while they safely cross through the sea. 
And so we have in verse 19, we read this. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So as we started, and we saw last time, right, this pillar of cloud was leading God's people out of Egypt, taking them on the precise trail, even as it led to a dead end. But that was intentional. We talked about that. But the Lord is leading. But now, as the Lord was leading them directly, He removes Himself from the front and goes to the back. He goes to the back of the line to create this barrier, this wall that will stand all night between the Jews and their pursuers. And we note that this pillar of cloud, this great wall, their separation, we see in verse 19 that it's identified as the angel of God. Do you see that there? Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind and so forth. But note this. This is no mere angel or mere messenger from God. Remember what we saw at the burning bush. Do you remember this? We saw the angel of God there, but that was no mere angel, for it made holy ground. Because it was the Lord Himself who was there. Even here, look down to verse 24 of Exodus 14. And in the morning watch, the Lord who was in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. It is the Lord Himself who is leading His people and now coming to behind to protect His people by His very presence. So here's the point. It's the very presence of God that leads His people, but more than this, it's His presence that protects them and guards them and keeps them the whole way. The salvation of His people, the preservation of His people, it was such an important task to God, He's not willing to entrust it to anyone else. And most of all, not to me, not to you. It's too important a task. God is going to see to it personally. And this is where, friends, our assurance of salvation, of rescue, can only and finally reside, but in the power of God. You know, that's why Peter can speak about our heavenly, eternal inheritance. And in 1 Peter, he talks about it. It's something so sure. He says this, that no matter what you're going through, no matter what suffering you're undergoing, he says, you can look to the hope that's set before us. What kind of hope is it? It's, he describes it this way. It's an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. It just can't be lost. That inheritance is imperishable. It's sure. Well, that sounds great as long as you don't perish in the process of trying to hold on to it. You know, I was studying with my daughter this week, and she was sharing as we learning about bees, and they make honey. Uh, what a particularly astonishing thing about honey is, is that it doesn't spoil. Did you realize that? I had no idea. So, it's interesting. As they've excavated uh, the mummies in Egypt, they found bowls of honey in it that are still good to eat. The honey didn't perish, but the king or Pharaoh did a long, long time ago, didn't he? 
that imperishable honey is not doing him any good. Well, what if salvation is like that? Sure, it's kept in heaven and it's safe, it's imperishable, but what if I can't hold on to it? Again, it's like this, if we can go through this thought experiment. Imagine you're flailing in the sea and God sends a heaven-sent helicopter and to rescue you throws you down this solid, sure, strong rope. It's never going to break. The problem is, what if your rescue depends on you having to grab that rope and keep holding on to it all the way to safety? If it's a long journey, you're going to be in trouble no matter how strong that rope is, not because the rope's going to break, but your strength to hold on to it will. But Peter clarifies that's not how salvation works because it's not just that the inheritance is imperishable. It's not that the rope is so strong, to use that analogy. Peter continues and says, who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, it's the very power of God that keeps us. And His power is not merely in the strength of the rope. It's that He binds us to the rope. It's like a harness that captures us because He's not going to let us go. He sees to it personally as we are guarded by the power of God. So again, this morning then, what are you afraid of? What is that fear that's on the horizon that maybe it's your, your fear is you're going to loosen your grip on Christ? What is that thing that you think if it happens, it's just going to so weaken your faith, you don't know if you can keep holding on to Him? Whatever it is, the temptation, it's pulling you away from Christ. What's that thing that you fear if it happened? You just don't know how you could go on. Like, can I trust that you're still good, God, if this happens? How can I keep believing? Well, know this. Whatever it is, that thing that you fear, even through that, His power is stronger to keep hold of His people, to keep them all through the long night. Answer your fears with this power, the God who has the power to keep His people. Trust Him in it. Furthermore, He alone has the power to judge everyone, to judge all people. Verses 21 and 23. Because make, make no mistake here, not only does He have the power to keep His people, but He alone has the power to judge and to judge all and that's pictured for us here as we follow both Israel and Egypt right into the sea. But first, we have the impossible take place. The sea splits in two. You see that? Look at verse 21, just as God had said. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Now, if you were there on the seashore seeing this happen, how much faith would it take to go in to that water? To do the next thing? To walk into the sea? Look at verse 22. It's what they do. 
And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I mean, this is astonishing. This is not normal. This is a miracle. And this expression, as it's put here and later in the text, that it was split in such a way that the waters became a wall on either side, on the right hand and on the left. And that expression clarifies for us something that's just so vexed scholars and commentators and skeptics about this whole Red Sea crossing. Because first of all, there's considerable, considerable debate about what sea or body of water they actually cross. Uh, we commonly talk about the Red Sea, but numerous Bible experts suggest that we've mistranslated that word and so then misidentified it. Uh, they suggested, well, it wasn't the Red Sea, but it was the Sea of Reeds. That's what the Israelite crossed. And if you know the setting in Egypt there, that can make some sense. Uh, Egypt was especially known for its abundance of papyrus reeds that grow throughout especially the eastern marshy lands of Egypt. And so some of these scholars want to suggest, well, it's not quite what you think. What's going on is that they were escaping during low tide. They were able to run through all of these reeds. And the Egyptian pursuing chariots could not, and they were getting stuck, and so that's how Israel got out. Now, why would any learned Bible scholar suggest this solution? I think there's two reasons. First, there is some admitted questions about trying to identify this Red Sea. That's how it reads in the biblical text. The Hebrew words are yam suf, and that could mean sea of or sea of reeds, suf, or it could mean a sea of the end. And Hebrew scholars debate these things, say like, which could be the end of the Gulf of Suez on the western side of the Sinai Peninsula. So that's one reason we're trying to identify really what is the Yom Suf, translated often Red Sea. But I suggest more of this has to do with, and the reason even that these alternate, uh, you might say, translations or interpretations gain popularity really just has to do with this. This is so astounding what we're reading this morning, people just cannot believe that's how it actually happened. I was there before I became a Christian. I mean, this was usually the first, I knew nothing, but I had seen the Charlton Heston movie, right? That stuff doesn't happen, ever. There's no way. I have never seen anything like that. And truth be told, I have never seen anything like that still. But I didn't see creation either. But frankly, this whole thought of escaping through a sea of reeds and maybe it was just kind of shallow water that they tromped through, uh, the Bible text just does not allow this kind of reinterpretation. And to prove that point, this story is often told to underscore that effect. Uh, the story goes like this. There was this one, you know, really learned pastor and scholar, and he happened to fill into a pulpit in this, out in the country among, you know, a country bumpkin type congregation. And he read them and taught to them this text of Exodus. And as he got to this part about crossing the Red Sea, the congregation just blurts out, praise the Lord taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle! To which the very learned and credentialed and respectable pastor explained, oh no, 
you've misunderstood. They crossed through a sea of reeds, escaping through a low tide of maybe six inches of water, to which the congregation then resounded, praise the Lord, drown in all them Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. To that we would say, amen. And that's it. It is a miracle. And I submit to you, the way the Bible describes it, this is no six inches of water. That would not explain the drowning of this whole army. No, it was a sea being parted with walls of water on either side. And so, that takes us back to the question. You're sitting on the shore. You see these walls of water rise up. What kind of faith does it take to step down into that? Well, it's at least enough faith to see that you've got nowhere else you can go. <laughs> but I can really guess, I'm sure of this, that as the Israelites passed through the sea, there were varying degrees of confidence as they were walking along on that dry ground on that sea bottom. What do I mean? There were some passing through, like some of you walking through life and trusting in Christ right now, and you just marvel at everything. You see these sea walls up, and, you, and they're the kind of people going, look at that. This is incredible. I think I see a whale swimming in there. This is so cool. Our God is awesome. And there's other of us falling behind them doing what? Dude, do you see that? Is that about to give way? I think it gave way up there. We're not going to make it. And you know what? God got all of his people through. The confident ones and the struggling and doubting ones. All his people cross over. And they make it out. But they're not the only ones that go in. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued... And went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? The Lord brings everybody into the water. Again, why does he do it this way? He takes both his people and the Egyptians into, on either side, walls of water before them, into this water tunnel. What does this call to mind? You know, to that point, and really to this point, what was the greatest act of judgment of God upon the earth? You might say, save the cross. But what was the thing that God did to judge the whole earth? He flooded it with water, killing everybody save eight. And it's being pictured here. Everybody's going into the water. Everybody's going into the water of judgment. Only some make it out and some do not. Why does God do it this way? He's showing us everybody will undergo or goes through His judgment. Some make it out and some do not. Why do some make it out and some don't? More pointedly, what makes you think that He should just not, so to speak, stop the wind and just remove his protection and make those walls of water slam upon you? Why should he stay his hand? 
Everyone will come through into the waters of judgment. What makes you think that you should escape? At death, you will appear before your creator, the one you have spurned, the one you have disobeyed. What makes you think he will stay his hand to keep the justice for your wrongs at bay? There is only one way through. There's only one way out. There's only one safe passage. You must hide yourself in Christ the Redeemer. And isn't it interesting, and I submit to you, it's by no accident that when we come to faith in Christ, what does Jesus command in the Great Commission? We saw this. Make disciples of all nations. The first thing you're going to do with them, they're going to do what? Be baptized. And by the way, what does baptized mean? It means immerse. We are submerged in the water at our baptism. Is that how we get saved? No, we're saved by faith in Christ. But our union with Christ by faith gets pictured in our own going through the water. As Jesus was buried in the tomb, we are buried too in the waters of God's judgment, saying we should die too. And it pictures our union with him, our fighting with, our, our hiding with him, such that his death counts for us. So that as he came out of the tomb, we too come out of the water to new life. Why? Because Jesus paid the price at his death. He soaked up all the waters of judgment for us. There's only one way out when you're going to go to the waters of judgment. And it's by the mercy of God found in his son. He will judge you. Will you find mercy with him through Christ is the question. Fourth. He alone has the power to conquer our enemies, verses 24 to 29. Next, God puts His power on display as He turns and fights our enemies, such that after first sending His people into the sea to get across, the Lord has now hardened Pharaoh's heart. And just note this, this is crazy. He's hardened His heart in such a way that Pharaoh is at least going to lead his army right into this. And this just becomes such a picture of what sin does. Do you see this? Sin makes you stupid. It makes you think things and see things that you shouldn't see and that aren't really there. And what I mean is, who was on the shore watching all the Israelites go in? What Egyptians were on the shore thinking, oh, I bet that's a good place for us to go. Let's go follow him after them. No, that is lunacy. But that's what sin does. It's suicidal. Things so capture your heart, you're just drawn to them anyway, even though you know it's going to go bad for you. We no longer see the obvious risks. Our reality is warped. So we plunge headlong after it. And then once they finally come to their senses, it's too late. Look at verse 24. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. And again, it's too late. Verse 25 goes on, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. 
Now, the Hebrew text is a bit ambiguous here as to what exactly goes on with the Egyptian chariots. That is, what does it mean that he clogged their wheels? Did he clog them with mud because the, 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 the ground was starting to become soft? Does he swerve their wheels? Does he just blow off their wheels, off their axles? We're just not exactly sure. Uh, what's very clear, their chariots don't drive so well anymore. Even though, by the way, the Israelites probably had carts that they were wheeling through all of this just fine. But why is this happening? The Egyptians know why this is happening. They know exactly what's going on. What do they say? The Lord's fighting for Israel. That's what's happening. We're doomed. The Lord is making war against us. So much so, they see the need to flee, but it's too late. Verse 27, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Scripture says here, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. That expression, the Lord threw the Egyptians into it, it's like, it's, it's like you enjoy a great cookie. And a great cookie is super crumbly. Now, some of you are very particular, and you're very neat and tidy. There's others of us who just enjoy God's good gifts freely, which means as then we look at our shirts after we eat, there are cookie crumbs all over your shirt. And then, so what should you do? You shake off the cookie crumbs, so then you don't show off you're such a slob. Well, that's what God has done with the most powerful army on the planet. He shook them off like one shakes off crumbs off a shirt, and they are tossed into the sea to their doom. They're nothing to Him. See, when God fights for His people, He wins, and He wins gloriously, such that not even one enemy remains. Look at verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Not one! They're all gone. There's no exceptions. When the Lord fights for His people, He wins completely. So in this case, not one Egyptian who goes in gets out alive. Do you realize that when Christ went to war for your sins, not one sin remains? And this is huge, though few realize it, because our sins are terrifying dangers to bear. It is a horrific thing to be before a holy God and be a sinful man. Again, we've said it before, but that's why Jesus was so concerned in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because He was preparing to bear your sin before a holy God. See, every transgression against the Creator God, it's a death sentence. It's a dead weight weighing you down as you're trying to tread water for safety. The wage of sin is spiritual, eternal death. And that's for each sin you commit, and that's for everyone here who we've given God innumerable reasons about why He should just give the Word and let the waters crash in. But then we hear what Christ has done. Like in Colossians chapter 2, when He says, And you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us 
all our trespasses. Now, how did he do that? It says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. All those death sentences, they are gone in Christ. How? This he set aside, nailing it, I will add, all to the cross. For he paid it all. All those sins, all those accompanying punishments, all those death sentences, all of those right and just accusations about your guilt, all of them were set on Christ if you look to him for saving. And so he paid the penalty for every last one such that you will never touch it. Understand this, the greatest enemies you have, the strongest in this world, those that threaten you with the greatest risk, the greatest loss, the longest lasting defeat are sin, death, and the devil and his accusations against you. There are no greater threats to your souls. Whatever you came in fearing this morning, you should fear those things a whole lot more. And those things can only be defeated in one way, in one place, at the victorious cross and empty tomb of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Is that not why he said on the cross, it is finished? Because there's no more work to do. Let's take him at his word. Which means finally that we would trust him. The Lord alone then stands worthy of our fear and our trust. Because turning now to verse 30, Moses summarizes really the whole event for us. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Yahweh saved Israel that day. He rescued them. He delivered them from bondage, from lifelong slavery. He freed them. He set them free from danger, and it notes this, from the hand of the Egyptians. Keep that in mind. He so saved them that their enemies, if any of them can be found, they are found dead on the shore. And we see it here, and we see it repeated in verse 31, but the text returns to that watchword, see. What do they see? Remember, what did we, where we began in verse 10 of this text, what did Israel see? They saw the Egyptians, and they were very afraid, right? All they could see was the approaching Egyptian armies, and so they feared. All that they could see or imagine was their doom. All they could see was how Moses and the Lord had failed them, were out to get them. All they could see was how big and how powerful and how mad and scary the Egyptians seemed to be now. All they could see is that they had no power to rescue themselves. All they could see was their troubles, so that in their unbelief they could no longer see God. And so they were most afraid. But by the end here, what do they see? Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What does that also show them? Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Or more literally, it should read this way, Israel saw the great hand which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians. It was a different hand that they were scared of, verse 30. It was the hand of the Egyptians. But what is the hand that delivered them? The stronger hand of the Lord God. A power that is far greater, that could turn water to wine, yes, 
can bring hailstorms, yes, kill only firstborns, yes, a hand that can shake off whole armies into the sea, yes, a hand and a power that's stronger than any other. As if to say, whatever you fear, why are you afraid? Why do you fear things? Well, it's stronger than you. It's greater than you. It could impoverish you. It could kill you. It could ruin you. It could hurt you. It could offend you. It could challenge you. Whatever it is, it can only do it for a while. And why? Because the Lord your God, His hand is stronger. That's what this means, again. What does this mean for us? Verse 31, Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Isn't that interesting? We started with fear, and now we have fear again, but now it's a different kind of fear, isn't it? It's a fear united with faith. So how does that work? How can you fear something and then also trust in something? How can fear and faith go together? How can you trust someone you are scared of? And I submit to you that's probably not the best way to think about it. Admittedly, these are things that are hard to explain. Let me provide an illustration, and I can think of one no better than C.S. Lewis and his Narnia tales. You probably know this story. If you're not familiar with the Narnia stories, there's talking animals, okay? That'll be important as I read this quote. <laughs> Mr. Beaver clarified for Lucy, who is a human child, by the way, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. It's the same thing here. God's people are humbled at the sight of His power. It's a power that puts you on your face. But it's a power that you see that it's good. Because it's good for His people. So back to that question where we began. What are you scared of? What anxieties do you bring into your heart into this gathering this morning? What fears are overwhelming you? Fear about the future, fear about where our country's going, maybe a threat of illness, or maybe you're anxious about the choices of your kids or grandkids, the troubles they'll find. Maybe you're even fearful about your own soul this morning, or fearful that you can't hold on yourself. Well, dare I say, do you fear because you have forgotten that He is good? Have you forgotten that in Christ, He is leveraging all of that power for your good? I dare say that's the beginning of where fears start. So answer your fears with a view of God's mighty power that saves helpless sinners. And there's no clearer view of that than at the cross, right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Let's praise Him and thank Him for that. Let's pray together.